So we are first going to read 1 Kings chapter 22. So 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 1 to 38. I'm going to be talking for a while because it's a longer passage, but it's a cracker of a story. So buckle in, but sure is interesting. So for three years, there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel had said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Canaanah, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says, With these you will gore the Aramaeans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. The king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. 
I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Canaanah, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which which way sorry, which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you? he asked. Micaiah replied, You'll find out on the day you go to hide in an inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, Take Micaiah and send him back to Amon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, This is what the king says, Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, If you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, Mark my words, all you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, Do not fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, Surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, Wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Aramaeans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariots and that evening he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread through the army, every man to his town, every man to his land. So the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried him there. There oh, they washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. It's going to be a good sermon. <laughs> um, and now we're going over to Jeremiah. Chapter 16. Oh, sorry, Jeremiah chapter 23. Uh, verse 16 to 24. Uh, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand it clearly. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. 
But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Am I only a God, a God, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Well, thank you, Penny. Uh, you're quite right. What a story. When, um, when one of my Old Testament colleagues asked me what I was preaching on, I said 1 Kings 22. He did what every Old Testament person does. It was like, uh, whoa, 1 Kings 22, eh? Um, it's such a famous story. The events that led to Ahab's death are famous because they're actually completely unique. They're filled with colorful characters and high drama, touch of comedy. But that's not why the story is famous. The story is famous because it's veiled in secrets and illusions. It's like one of those beautiful Japanese puzzle boxes. This is a story that we have to unlock piece by piece until finally we get moments of clear vision that reveal the truth at the center. Um, Really appreciated Penny's prayer, but I'm going to pray again because we need wisdom for this chapter, don't we? Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word. Please give us wisdom to understand it. As Penny prayed, we pray for open hearts that you would speak into them and strengthen us to trust you with confidence and to come before you day by day in prayerful dependence. For Jesus' sake. Amen. All right. As we get to this story, um, we kind of need to know what's been happening in the lead-up. So a bit of context. First of all, Israel and the northern neighbor Aram have been at war. Uh, you see Aram is the country right at the top there. And the Arameans had taken a whole lot of territory off Israel. But back in chapter 20, the Lord gave Ahab a miraculous victory. And when the king of Aram came crawling, defeated to Ahab, instead of delivering justice to his people, Ahab was enticed into making a cozy little treaty, a little trade deal. Right? Aram said, I'll return those towns that I took, uh, and you, Ahab, you can get this lucrative trade deal in Damascus. You see, Ahab is a guy who's going to manipulate and walk over anyone to feed his greed. And we need to start building a, a character profile of Ahab as we move into this chapter. Moving on to chapter 21, uh, Ahab wants a vineyard, but the owner won't sell, so manipulative Ahab goes off sulking to Jezebel. Jezebel tells him to start acting like a king, for goodness sake, and she proceeds to get the vineyard for him by falsely accusing the owner and having him executed. Great success. Except that Elijah pops up and confronts Ahab with a murder charge from God. It's their final meeting. And Elijah says something so important to Ahab that the narrator actually repeats it. There was never anyone like Ahab 
who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Right, so this is Ahab. He is the king who sulks like a little boy when he doesn't get his way. He's the king whose greed controls him. He's a slave to his own evil desires. All right? That brings us to today's chapter. I advise you to look it up if you've got it in front of you. Uh, the story's got seven scenes. There's three to begin, three to finish, and a pivotal scene in the middle. And we're going to just work through them, um, hopefully uh, not taking all day to do it. So scene one, Ahab uses Jehoshaphat. So three years have passed since the war with Aram, and it turns out the Arameans have kind of failed to return a major border town. Now, I'm guessing that Ahab hadn't done anything about this because he was making money out of his trade deal. And also, his army might have been a touch under strength. But now something happens to finally make Ahab change his mind. The king of Judah pays a visit. Now, this is actually a complete surprise. So far in 1 Kings, every single interaction between the two countries shows them at war. So when the king of Judah pays Ahab a friendly visit, we go, what? What's going on? Anyway, Jehoshaphat's visit seems to be the trigger for Ahab to do something about this enemy-occupied city. Because if he can use Judah's army, why not? The problem is of his lost city is being discussed when Jehoshaphat arrives, but Jehoshaphat's a a little bit slow on the uptake, and Ahab has to ask him outright, a bit like a first date, now will you go with me to fight Ramoth Gilead? And doesn't he get a gratifying response? Not just, uh, yeah, okay, but like a blossoming bromance. Right? What's mine is yours, brother, says Jehoshaphat. Um, We're going to get to know Jehoshaphat a little bit better, but I think we can already sense from the beginning of the story that he's a a people pleaser, maybe a touch goofy, if I can say that. Um, Now, Dave Sheath left Jehoshaphat out of his Hollywood cast, so I get to bring him to you now alongside Ahab. Now, there's just... One little problem in this beautiful but slightly one-sided bromance. Jehoshaphat is not comfortable with helping Ahab without doing the right thing and consulting the Lord first. He's quite insistent about it, in fact, so that Ahab knows he's not going to be able to talk Jehoshaphat out of it. I'm really sorry, man, but kind of really need to get the okay from the Lord, if that's okay with you, like today. So, scene two, Jehoshaphat irritates Ahab. Now, Ahab's not the type to give in to a weaker man, so he pushes back. You notice in verse uh, five, he collects 400 prophets. It seems like the prophets that were killed on Mount Carmel have been replaced over the last three years, and Ahab commands them to advise him. But Uh, the question we need to ask is, who are these prophets consulting? There's an important little detail in verse 6. He says, uh, Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But then in verse 7, Jehoshaphat says, Is there no prophet of the Lord here? But if you're looking at the text, you see the Lord is written differently. 
Now you see that in, in verse 6, the prophets talk about the Lord in small letters. And that's a way to mean it could be referring to any God, true God, false God, whatever. But in verse 7, in capitals, Jehoshaphat's talking about the only true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jehoshaphat doesn't feel comfortable with this substitute consultation. He may be a bit weak, but he's still got enough convictions to just hold him back. And so finally, Ahab is forced to do what he really doesn't want to do in verse 8. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, there is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, capital letters, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. Not Elijah, did you notice that? Because Elijah is actually way beyond Ahab's reach or control. But Micaiah, he lives nearby. He's like a lone witness to the true God in hostile circumstances. All right, we good with the story so far? Pretty straightforward. But now I want you to notice Jehoshaphat's response. This is a first hint of complexity in this story. Jehoshaphat's response is, the the king shouldn't say such a thing. Ahab's hate really bothers Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat's reaction does a couple of things. First of all, it pushes Ahab to finally send someone to actually fetch Micaiah. But secondly, Jehoshaphat's response makes us go back and reconsider Ahab's words. You know, a bit of Bible trivia for you. This is the only time in the Bible a person in a conversation says they hate someone. We're being reminded that Ahab is a man who is ruled by his passions. So just tuck that away as we move into scene three, where Ahab entices Jehoshaphat. We could easily spend the whole time looking at Jehoshaphat. He's the classic example of a person gradually becoming more and more complicit with evil. Ahab basically toys with him like a a cat with a mouse. And he pushes Jehoshaphat's boundaries one by one, just trying to get him to leave his convictions behind. So while the official has gone off to fetch Micaiah, Ahab sets up these two thrones by the city gate, which is the traditional place where the court of justice used to be held. And he says, come, come, come and join me, Jehoshaphat. You know, we're kings, you and I, we guys call the shots. Let's get a prophecy from the Lord in capital letters, like you like. Not the true God, should we do that? And Ahab calls all of his prophets back again, but this time... They supply an absolutely flawless prophecy with all the trappings. So Zedekiah begins, uh, this is what the Lord says, all capital letters, just like true prophets do. And then Zedekiah performs a powerful symbolic action, just like Hosea or Isaiah or, or Ezekiel. He makes a pair of horns and acts out a rampaging ox. And get this. When Zedekiah is doing that, he then quotes scripture from the prophecy of Moses about the future of the northern tribes of Israel. This is where Zedekiah is getting his prophecy from. 
In majesty, Joseph is like a firstborn bull. His horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them, he will gore the nations, even those at the ends of the earth. But there is literally nothing wrong with Zedekiah's prophecy. Except, of course, that it didn't come for the Lord. That's the only little detail. And the one small hint we get that this is actually a bogus prophecy is Zedekiah's name. He is the son of Canaanah, or in English, the son of Canaan. He's a pagan idol worshipper. I'd love to see Jehoshaphat's reaction to this very impressive but actually bogus prophecy, but instead the narrator cuts to the messenger. He's coming back with Micaiah, and this is where things start to get really puzzling. I don't know if you felt that as you listened to the story. The messenger's briefing Micaiah as they travel, right? He's strongly advising that. Micaiah, don't be the only voice against. And Micaiah, in verse 14, he makes exactly the right response. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, that's an oath, right? I swear by God's life, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. And then... When Ahab puts the question to him, Micaiah says exactly word for word what all the other prophets said. What are we supposed to do with that? It certainly looks as though Micaiah's lost his nerve, doesn't it? Broken his oath. The first thing we need to do as we try and untangle this puzzle is view this scene through Ahab's eyes. Because he's the main character at the moment. Just think about it. Whose messenger was it? It was Ahab's messenger, right? So when that messenger was urging Micaiah what to to say, what if Ahab wanted Micaiah to lie so that Ahab could then lose his temper to manipulate Jehoshaphat? Verse 16. How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And then Micaiah, who's been yelled at, finally relates the true vision God gave him to to, to relate. He uses the language of seeing, which is significant because it suggests that everybody else is, in some sense, blind to the reality. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. Notice what happens next. Ahab, sitting on his throne, turns to Jehoshaphat, sitting on the throne next to him, and he says, like one king to another, didn't I tell you? He never prophesies anything good about me. What Ahab has done is he's demonstrated to Jehoshaphat that he, Ahab, has power over Micaiah, just like he has power over the other prophets. And now he invites wavering Jehoshaphat to share a bit of a laugh at Micaiah the weirdo. Can you see Ahab's strategy? He's given Jehoshaphat a choice between two prophecies from the Lord, a really impressive one and a botched up one. And he sat Jehoshaphat on a throne of judgment. He says, you've got the power to choose between these. Now, if this was a more straightforward story, I think we'd cut straight to verse 29, the final scenes, and we'd see that Jehoshaphat actually was enticed He did take that step from complicity to partnership 
And the two kings head out to battle together where Ahab gets killed. And Micaiah's second prophecy about Israel being scattered on the hills is exactly fulfilled in verse 36. Verse 36 says, As the sun was setting, a cry spread through the army, every man to his town, every man to his land. That would be the straightforward version of this chapter. But it's not where the story goes, is it? Because it's not a straightforward story. It's a puzzle box. Scene three ends with the two kings chatting and Micaiah just completely ignored. But then at the start of scene four, Micaiah suddenly just starts speaking again. Nobody asked him to. I think they're totally surprised. I thought this guy had gone. But what he says just turns the whole story upside down. In verse 19, Micaiah seems to be caught up into heaven where he has this majestic vision. The Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him. What a contrast to Ahab and Jehoshaphat on their thrones surrounded by Canaanite prophets. But a new king has invaded the story and taken center stage. Our other Bible reading from Jeremiah gave us a really interesting description of that heavenly council. Right? True prophets sometimes got the privilege of being spectators to hidden truths that are only going to be revealed to the rest of humanity in days to come. Right? This is a little piece of Jeremiah that Uh, Penny read to us, which of these prophets has stood in the council of the Lord to see or to hear his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked in days to come. You will understand it clearly. Jeremiah was taken up into the heavenly council and so was Micaiah. So what hidden truth was Micaiah shown? Well, He was shown the key to the whole puzzle box contained in the Lord's very first words in verse 20. Verse 20, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead? Well, as we heard, there's a bit of a discussion up there in the heavenly council, and the result is that the Lord puts a deceiving spirit, a lying spirit, into the mouths of all of Ahab's prophets. So while Ahab thinks he's enticing Jehoshaphat, actually, he's the one being enticed by the Lord to his death. Well, with that key, we can actually go back to the previous scene and unlock it. Let's go back to Zedekiah's prophecy of success. If that was a lie that God put into his mouth, then maybe Micaiah didn't lose his nerve. Maybe Micaiah didn't cop out. Maybe his first false prediction was exactly what the Lord told him to say. You with me? You following? And if you look again at how Ahab responded to that first false prophecy, you know, losing his temper and yelling, well, It now looks like Ahab has been tricked into admitting that he knew all along which prophet was telling the truth. Verse 16, don't you dare not tell me the truth when you speak in the Lord's name. 
right? The Lord has enticed Ahab to say out loud that his prophets were lying and that Micaiah is telling the truth. But just think about this. If we look at this scene from the Lord's point of view, and he's the main character now, he's the real king, this was God's plan all along. He wanted to use Micaiah to entice Ahab into exposing his dark secret. His dark secret is that he has chosen to believe the lying prophets while knowing the whole time that they were lying. I mean, who does that, right? Why would anyone believe someone they know to be lying? maybe, Maybe it wasn't a free choice. Maybe the Lord deceived Ahab, clouded his mind so that he just made an irrational choice that led to his well-deserved death. Well, actually, no. Because there's a piece of this puzzle that proves Ahab made a free choice. And that is that Micaiah doesn't just tell Ahab a lie and stop there. He also tells Ahab that it was a lie. Doesn't he? His heavenly vision, that was a vision the Lord wanted Ahab to see. Exactly like one of those magicians who does a trick and then shows you how they did the trick. Is this doing your head in? Let's, let's just stop and take a breath. Um, God's strategy boils down, I think, to three simple steps. Step one, God tells Ahab a lie. Then God tells Ahab the truth. Then God tells Ahab which is which. Yep. Tells him a lie, tells him the truth, tells him which is which. The choice lies with Ahab. He knew the prophets were lying. God told him the prophets were lying. But he chose to believe them anyway. So, question, why on earth? Would Ahab do that? Well, the answer lies back in scene two, where we have to take our key and unlock that as well. The final piece of the puzzle is in verse eight. I hate him. Remember that line? That so bothered Jehoshaphat? Ahab is ruled by his passions, and it is his hate that drives him to believe something that he knows to be a lie. He chooses the lie because he hates the truth so much that he refuses to accept it. And God always knew that Ahab was going to make that choice because God knew what was in Ahab's heart. But I don't know if you noticed when you were listening, um, this chapter calls Jehoshaphat Jehoshaphat all the time, right? But it never calls Ahab Ahab. Did you notice that? He's always called the king of Israel. There's just one exception. In verse 20, the Lord names him Ahab. There can be no concealment from the Lord. He knew Ahab was a person who was enticed by his hate into rejecting the truth and losing his life. What a story. Scene five, Ahab tries to hide the truth. From this point, Ahab basically stops acting and starts reacting, and everything starts to unravel really fast. Actually, Zedekiah is the first to react because he won't believe that Micaiah speaks from God. But I'm, I'm racing through these final scenes, so I'm going to jump to Ahab, verse 26. 
where he tries to reassert his royal authority, right? the power of his word. So he wants to hide Micaiah out of sight and not even be able to see him. And Micaiah tells Ahab that one day, right, in the future when all the secrets are revealed, everyone will see the truth that Micaiah saw hidden in heaven. And that day will be the day that Ahab fails to return safely. Now, obviously, Ahab won't learn the truth that day, right? Because he'll be dead. Micaiah's audience is actually all the people in verse 48. So in the second last scene, Ahab, who's already deceived himself, decides to disguise himself so the enemy won't target him. And helpful Jehoshaphat actually goes along with this. Uh, Just remember his goofiness. But actually, you don't want to have to rely on a guy like that. When the pressure's on, he lets out a yelp. So Ahab's deception basically deceives no one. But it doesn't matter anyway, does it? Because Ahab's attempt to hide could never deceive the Lord. Before anybody could figure out which one was Ahab, this random arrow pierced the tiniest chink. You cannot hide from the God who knows your name. And so in the final scene, Ahab has lost all control. He has to be physically propped up in his chariot. Turns out Ahab was God's tool all along, but by his own choice. But with all the facts in front of him, with certain knowledge of what was true and what was a lie, Ahab's hatred of God drove him to choose the lie and to lose his life. Well, our last sordid glimpse of Ahab is back in Samaria, where the dogs are licking up his blood pooled in the bottom of his chariot. And verse 38 concludes, as the word of the Lord had declared. It was back in chapter 21 when Elijah brought that murder charge against Ahab. See what he prophesied. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Years before Jehoshaphat ever came to visit his new best friend, God had already planned and worked out this whole drama down to the smallest detail. What a story, isn't it? There is no power on earth that can control the word of the Lord. It's like a fire. It's like a hammer. All the secret things belong to him. His voice breaks the gods of the nations and all who serve them. Who should not fear our great God? Who should not love our great God? He is incomparable. Just such a great story. There's so much to unpack. Um, And I want to step back and just think about this story a bit with you. Um, Just didn't even know where to start. There's so much in here, right? But I've chosen three questions that I want to just reflect on a bit as we ponder what this all means for us. So the first question that came to me as I thought about this is really about God. The Bible teaches that God doesn't lie. Jesus says, I am the truth. But if God is not lying in this story, what is he doing? 
Well, the answer is that God takes the lie that Ahab has already chosen, right? I will win this battle. And he gets a prophet to speak that lie back to him to expose his hatred and get him to condemn himself, right? God takes the lies that we all tell and he uses those lies to judge us. People lie to themselves all the time, don't they? We lie to ourselves because we have emotional attachments that we want to protect. We have things that are actually more important to us than the truth. We have anxieties that we soothe with false beliefs. We have self-images that we want to cling on to. Let me give you an example. Imagine a woman who has always strongly condemned people who cheat on their spouse. But then she has an affair. She says to herself, if my husband hadn't been emotionally cut off, if he hadn't always been at work, if he hadn't forced me to do this, and she chooses to believe what she secretly knows is a lie so that she can keep telling herself she's not a bad person. And here's the thing. The longer she keeps up this lie, the more her choice just starts to feel normal to her, right? The more she feels that the joys of her secret relationship make everything okay. And slowly her heart changes. She loses that sense of truth that she used to have, those old moral convictions. And now other people who condemn unfaithfulness like she once did just now repel her. Her choice to embrace the lie has turned her into a truth hater, what Jesus calls a slave to sin. I'm going to put up some words from John chapter 8. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, I know that you Jews are Abraham's descendants. Yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. You know, on the day of judgment, Those who are condemned will be condemned through the testimony of nobody but themselves. And if we're honest, we have to recognize that we all deceive ourselves, right? We all hate the truth sometimes. None of us can stand before God and not deserve to die. And yet we are sitting here today because in his mercy, God's Son has reached into our lives and set us free. Praise the Lord. He's changed our hearts so that we have the power to make a choice that Ahab couldn't make. And this for me raises a second question from Ahab's story, which is if God has done that to us, why did he choose not to do it to Ahab? Why didn't he reach into Ahab's heart and point it in a better direction? Why did God do the opposite and use his truth to entice Ahab into reaffirming his hatred and bringing judgment crashing down on his head. Ahab's story makes me think about the power of God's truth to judge. Now, the ultimate answer to why God judges the people he judges is that we we don't know. We just have to trust in God's absolute 
goodness, his unconditional love. And if ever the judgment of the wicked makes us feel uneasy, we only have to remember that God so loved the world that he shared in that judgment on the cross. But 1 Kings 22, I think, does show us one reason at least why God chose to use truth to judge Ahab. This is it. God judged Ahab to save Jehoshaphat. Not to save him from being killed, but to save him from giving up his faith. If you read on into 2 Kings, you'll see that Judah's alliance with Israel led them to the brink of extinction. Jehoshaphat's son marries Ahab's daughter, and the divided kingdom came that close to being reunited as a Baal-worshipping kingdom. And if that had happened, like everything would be lost, right? God's entire work of raising up a holy nation to carry his love to the world would have come to nothing. Right? Destroyed by the, the evil that scarred this world since almost the beginning. But here's the thing about God. Evil doesn't take him aback. It doesn't force him from acting into reacting. He uses his truth to turn evil into a tool for achieving his good purposes. It's amazing. You know what? You know how I think Ahab is meant to remind us of? Actually, the devil. Here's a question for you. Think about Jesus and the devil. Why did the devil prompt Judas to betray Jesus? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe you haven't. I think about this stuff. Well, didn't the devil know that Jesus' death would break his own power over death? Didn't the devil know that the father had placed an indestructible life within his son? I think he did. But his hatred for God was so deep, his passion for murder was so strong that God enticed the devil by those passions into bringing about the one murder that he knew would destroy him. I want you to listen to this passage from Thessalonians, which draws a link between the devil and people who hate the truth like Ahab. I'll put it up for you. Satan will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but who have delighted in wickedness. When somebody hates the truth, when somebody hates God that much, their hatred deludes them into embracing the lie that life without God, will be better. I was involved in a conversation once, years ago now, in which a woman slowly came to understand the gospel of grace for the very first time. You mean, she said, you mean there's nothing we can do to earn God's approval? We just have to accept his mercy? And as the truth dawned, she started to get angry. If I'd realized that, she said, I never would have sent my kids to Sunday school. But that God might look at her and find nothing deserving, 
Nothing untainted by evil. That was so offensive to her that it drove her away from God. So I pray not forever. I wanted to slow down and think hard about this story because of the deep questions it raises. I'm going to skip forward to my who is equal to such a task slide. Thanks, guys. I want to think hard about the deep questions this story raises about the power of human beings to deceive ourselves and about the justice of God in using his truth to expose evil. What do we do with that? What do we do with those truths? How should they touch us in our Christian life? Well, my suggestion is that we use them to both build our confidence and our humble prayerfulness. We've all got friends. We've got family. We've got workmates who don't know Jesus, who desperately need the life that he came to give. And as we spend time with them, as we take chances to speak about what matters to us, as we share the hopes and the joys that we have in Christ, or even just as we live a distinctively Christian way, as we do all of those things, we become uh, an embodiment of the truth of God in their lives. The book of Kings teaches us that the word of God is the most powerful thing in the universe. Right? Literally nothing can resist its power. But what happened in the death of Ahab shows us that when we share the truth about God, we're actually sharing something that doesn't only have the power to transform them inwardly into God's children. That exact same truth also has the power to harden them on the inside and bring them into a tragically deserved judgment. This is how Paul puts it. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Such a sobering call. We have the words of life and death, and we don't know when they will bring life and when they will bring death. But we've got to take our courage into our hands and speak them anyway. Speak those words into the lives of people who are enslaved by their passions. We know we're going to face hostility and hatred. We don't care about that. What we care about is that hatred enticing someone we love to their death. And so we pray. We pray for mercy and for life because that's what God wants us to pray. We pray because it's not our power, it's God's power. And when we see what Jesus suffered for the world, we know we can trust him to wield the power of God's truth. And so we pray without knowing because we know that on that day when all the hidden truths are exposed, We're going to be singing with all our hearts. We're going to be singing, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? 
Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.